Good morning. I'm glad you're here today. We've got a lot of our folks that are traveling and gone in different places. So uh, we're always glad you're here, but we're especially glad when we've got a lot of people gone. We're going to talk to you just a little bit today about the history of Christianity. And we're going to continue the series. This is number three out of six. And uh, let me give you just a little catch-up. We talked in our first lesson about persecuted Christianity. From the years 70 to 312, that began uh, at the destruction of Jerusalem and went all the way to 312 when a, uh, a Roman emperor was converted to Christianity and uh, the toleration of Christianity began. And that was marked by a period of intense persecution. The spread of Christianity was tremendous. It spread very quickly throughout the world. The canon of Christian Scripture was recognized, and then there was the rise of the bishop, which was a change in the government of the church. The next period of time we talked about was imperial Christianity. That was 312 to 590. It began when the Roman emperor was converted and went until we had the first pope that uh, came to prominence to be recognized worldwide as the father or the papa or pope, as they say, of the church. That began, as we said, when the Roman emperor Constantine became a Christian. And the Roman emperor from that point became the head of the visible Christian church on earth for a long period of time. The guy who was running the church was the Roman emperor. The government of the church was changed to mirror the government of the Roman Empire. The councils began to decide church doctrine and they used to gather elite leaders of Christianity from different places and they would have big debates and discuss church doctrine and come out with with uh, edicts that would make sure that every church in every place did exactly the same thing. And then finally there was the rise of the Pope, which was just the next logical or the ultimate logical step in setting a bishop up over congregations, which ultimately led to one bishop being the bishop of all bishops, the Pope and head of the church. What we're going to talk about this time is the age of Christendom. Now what's happened by the time you get here is, remember the Roman Empire had kind of split into two different empires. There was the Eastern Empire and the Western Empire. And the Western Empire had collapsed. There was no civilized, organized system of government in the Western Empire. They had been invaded by lots and lots of hordes of people who were barbarians, basically. You had the Goths and the Vandals and the Huns and the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths and and the Franks, and different groups that were basically just these barbarian tribes. You've heard of Attila the Hun. He was one of the guys. And they came through, and when they would come through, what was left of the Roman Empire, since there was no real structure, just crumbled. And they would decimate the areas. They would destroy it and take everything they could of value and move on. They didn't stay. They weren't conquering territory like the Romans would go conquer and set up and expand their empire. They didn't. They weren't interested in that. They were just looting and pillaging. So what ends up happening is in all these places, you've got these warlords that rule the territory that's as big as they have the power to rule. 
But there is no centralized government. There is no civilization, so to speak. It becomes very barbaric. During this period of time, there are two capitals. There's the capital in Rome of the Western Roman Empire that's still there. And then there's the capital of Constantinople. Now, remember Constantine set up a new capital of the Roman Empire in the city named after him, Constantinople. That was the seat of military and political power in the Roman Empire. But there was a division of power. You see, over here is where the spiritual authority was. The Pope of Rome, the Bishop of Rome, we talked about last time how that, that's a fascinating story, how the Bishop of Rome rose to be the head of the church instead of the Bishop of Constantinople. But it so happened that that's the way it was. So the Roman Bishop, the Pope, was recognized as the head of the church pretty much everywhere around the world. So you had this division of power. You had spiritual authority recognized in Rome, but you had political and military power recognized in Constantinople. That was a problem for the Roman Empire, and it's going to give birth to what we call the Holy Roman Empire. Now, the the guy that I want to talk to you about first this morning as we get into this is this fellow right here. His name is Charles Martel. And this is the kingdom of the Franks. If I go back here, you can see this map. That's where the, this area right here began to gain prominence. And there was this guy named Charles Martel who was the mayor of the palace. And that was like being prime minister in Britain. You know, in Britain, the king is, he's just a figurehead. Or the queen, she's just a figurehead. She doesn't have real power. The real power is in the prime minister, be it Tony Blair or John Cameron or or Churchill or Margaret Thatcher, whoever it is at the time, they're the ones with the real power. And this guy, mayor of the palace, was the guy who had real power. This guy had a nickname. They called him Charles the Hammer Martell. And uh, that's even before the WWE, WWF, these guys that have all... This guy was Charles the Hammer Martel, and he was a very powerful political leader. And he did something that affects you and I today. And what that is, is this. About this time, there was an Arab camel driver by the name of Muhammad who claimed that he got a vision from God. And this Arab camel driver began a religion based on this vision he got from God. And in his vision, he told people that God told him this, it's the Arab and not the Jew that's the special people of God. It's Ishmael and not Isaac who was the chosen son. It's the Koran, which he would write, by the way, and not the Bible, which is the final word from God. It's Allah and not Jehovah who should be worshipped. It's Muhammad who is the final prophet, not Jesus. And we are to kill our enemies, not love them. The word is jihad. That means holy war against our enemies. He began to teach this and he developed a powerful army. And he took this army and he spread his religion with his army. And he went into to village after village and he would go in and he would force people to convert to Islam, his religion, or he'd kill them. 
And when they converted to Islam, he took their money and he made them a part of his army. And so his army just got larger and larger and more and more and more powerful. And it got so powerful that even after he died, it continued to sweep. It traveled from, it started in what we call Saudi Arabia, and it traveled all the way across the north side of Africa here along the Mediterranean Sea. It went across the Strait of Gibraltar and up into Spain, and it began to travel through Spain as they were conquering territory, and they were going to move just like this and ride on through Europe, right over what used to be the Roman Empire. And remember, the Roman Empire's crumbled. There's nobody to fight them. The Roman Empire was primarily an infantry-based military. By infantry, I mean foot soldiers. They had soldiers who walked. The Arabs had developed a way to stay on horses. They're called stirrups. In the West, they didn't have stirrups, but the Arabs did. And so they had a cavalry, a very strong cavalry with horses, and that gave them a huge advantage when it came to fighting in battles. And as we said, the Romans had collapsed, so all you had were these warlords in different places. They didn't begin to stand up against this Arab army that was coming through. That's where Charles Martel comes in. Charles the Hammer, they called him the Hammer because he was the Hammer of God. That's what they said. And he brought his armies down. They snuck her in. They didn't use the roads. They went over the mountains. And they picked the battlefield. And it's called the Battle of Tours. And what they did is they... They set up camp and their armies at the top of a big hill before tours that the Arabs were going to uh, attack. And there was a, there was a, a forest down below. And they set up at the top of this hill. And so the cavalry of the Arabs had to charge up the hill through the forest to fight his infantry troops. Well, that took away their advantage. And he, with less than half of the forces, defeated the Arab invasion. If it hadn't been for that man right there, you and I probably would speak Arabic today. Because there was nothing else to stop the Arab invasion of Europe. And all of us, our heritage, our history comes from Europe, right? So Arabic would be, we would probably be not a Christian nation, but a Muslim nation from the very beginning. If it hadn't been for what this guy did in October of 732, I believe it was October the 10th of 732 when he fought this battle and stopped this expansion of the Arab Empire. Now, he had a son who took over when he died. The guy's name was Pepin the Short. I don't know if he was short or not, but they called him Pepin the Short. Some places they called him Pepin the Younger. But he was a very, very valiant general in his own right. He wasn't as powerful as his dad. He didn't do as much as his dad did. But as a general, he was undefeated in his lifetime. He was a very effective leader of the Franks and he continued to expand the kingdom of the Franks. But he's really not that important. The guy who's really important is his son. And this is a guy you've heard of, Charles the Great, or as his other name is, Charlemagne. Now, if you've studied history at all, you've heard of Charlemagne. Christy's shaking her head. She's heard of Charlemagne. Charlemagne 
is one of the big essay questions on your history test. Because Charlemagne was one of the most important men that ever lived politically and uh, militarily. Now, he wasn't that important in maybe some other ways, but he was very important politically and militarily. You see, he was twice the general his grandfather was. He was very effective. He went and he conquered the uh, Slavs and the Bavarians, Bavarians, and he chased the Muslims all the way back down to their territory. He really expanded the kingdom and he had tremendous power over all of the area of Europe where he was at. Very, very effective general. Now, what's been going on in Rome during all this time is the Roman pontiff, the Roman uh, religious pontiff, the Pope, has had all this spiritual authority, but he didn't have any way to enforce it. You know, in every home, Dad can make rules, right? But in some homes, nobody pays any attention to the rules Dad makes, right? That's the way it was in... Yancey's shaking his head. (laughs) And the girls are all shaking their heads. (laughs) I think in the Jones home, when Yancey made a rule, he had the power to make that rule stand. Okay, But we've all seen homes that that wasn't the case, right? We've all seen homes where Dad didn't have what it took to lead the home and make the decisions. The Roman... Pope at this time was the dad who had the ability to make the rules, but he didn't have any way to enforce them. And the guy who's Pope at this time has a great idea. He looks at Charlemagne and he says, you know what? This guy can be my muscle. I mean, if I can get in league with him, if I can work out a way for he and I to work together... We could control the entire world and I could enforce religious law. I could set up the kingdom of God and the vision of Augustine's city of God could become real. And we could have a Christian empire that could rule the world. And so he did. He talked to Charlemagne and he got in league with Charlemagne. And on Christmas Day in 800 A.D., the Pope crowned Charlemagne as Charles Most Pious crowned Augustus by God. Now, you see that word Augustus? Does that remind you of anything? Caesar. The very first Roman Caesar was Caesar Augustus. This is the beginning of what's called the Holy Roman Empire. And what they had now was a double-edged sword. They had the ideas of religion in the Pope, and they had the muscle in Charlemagne, and they set about to create the kingdom of Christ on this earth. You remember Jesus told Pilate, He said, if my kingdom was of this earth, my my servants would fight. These guys began to fight. They enforced moral law on Europe moral Christian law. They outlawed dancing and they outlawed gambling. And Charlemagne took his armies and he went all through Europe enforcing the moral law of the Pope on Europe. That became 
the rule of the Holy Roman Empire. Now this guy sent out what were called Missi Dominici or Dominici, and I don't speak Latin, so I don't know how to pronounce all of those, but basically these were guys, it meant envoys of the Lord, and they were like sheriffs who were sent out, they were military leaders, and their job, they'd send one to Denton if if this was happening in Denton. And his job was to take the police force which worked under him and to enforce the moral laws of the Pope on everyone who lived in Denton. And then there would be one in Dallas, and there would be one in McKinney, and there would be one... And he sent these guys all around. This guy did some other things too, though that he's well remembered for. He was great for culture. At this point, you remember, only the priests could read and write. Well, he he made laws. The uh, Charlemagne made some laws. And he began to require churches to teach reading, writing, and arithmetic to boys. Not girls. Girls weren't allowed to have that yet. But boys were. And they began all over Europe to start what they called leisure. And the the Greek word for leisure is skule, which began to become what we call schools today. A place where they taught and educated children. That was a very important part of what he did. But So you've got this, this thing going on where you've got the Pope on one hand making the rules... And then you've got Charlemagne enforcing the rules on the other side. This is what you normally think of when you think of the Middle Ages. Have you ever been to medieval times in Dallas? Any of you ever been there? You know, they've got the knights and the lords and the ladies and the serfs and the vassals and they joust and they... That's what this period of time is. The knights wearing the armor and and all of that. That's what's going on during this period of time. They call it the feudal system, F-E-U-D-A-L. And the word feud meant fee. And what you had is in Aries, you had a lord who owned all the land. And if you wanted to live there, you paid that lord who was lord over this land. That's where we get the word landlord from. Because the guy who owns it, and you pay him to live there. And he had a mercenary army who would go and fight for him and defend his territory. And that's the way this system worked at the time. It worked this way for a long, long time. Something that began to develop throughout this period of time was what they called lay investiture. Lay investiture worked like this. If I wanted to preach here at this church in Denton, I would have to get my authority to preach from who? Well, we know how that works today. If I want to preach here, I go to the elders, and they're the ones who allow me to preach here. But according to lay investiture, that came from, I would have to go to the mayor of Denton. Because the mayor of Denton was the lord of the land... And he controlled everything that went on in Denton. And if I wanted to preach in Denton, I'd have to go to him, and he being a lay person, that means not being in the church, would invest power in me to preach. That's why they called it lay investiture. Now, as you can imagine, one of the things that came along with getting to preach or be a priest in a king in a church in, in an area was you got to collect money from the people in the church. And the more money you 
the bigger the church, the more money you would collect, and you got to keep a big portion of that money. So as you can imagine, those became highly sought after jobs. And people would compete for the jobs of priest, or what we would call a preacher today, in those churches, right? Well, as the landlords began to realize this, they began selling those positions to people who wanted those jobs. So you could be a supporter of the landlord, give him a bunch of money, and he'd say, you know what? I'm going to let you be the preacher there. Now, all of you, if you've are in been here very long, you've seen this Denton Bible Church right over here, haven't you? I guess it's the biggest church in town. I don't know. I understand they have four or 5,000 members. If I had the money, and this was going on, I could go to the mayor of Denton and I could fork over enough cash that next Sunday, instead of preaching here, I'd be preaching down at Denton Bible because I would have the money and the mayor would say, you're in. Another thing that happened during that period of time was a lot of nepotism because the government controlled who was running the churches. And so... We might get a call here at this church after being here for years and Yancey and Matt being elders for several years and we get a call from the mayor and he says, hey, my brother-in-law is moving to town and he's going to be the elder at that church now, not Matt and Yancey. And that's what would happen. Can you imagine? We get upset about things that the government tries to do regarding religion in America right now. Can you they called it simony, named after Simon the sorcerer in the Bible because he tried to buy the the power of God. He tried to buy the gift of God. And they were selling these offices. You know, it became almost like a franchise where you'd have guys who bought bishoprics in church after church after church after church. So you'd have one guy who would be the bishop of all these different churches because he'd bought the rights to those churches. It was a money-making deal. Well, there were a group of about 300 French monasteries that finally got their belly full of this. And they said, you know what, that's not right. And these 300 French monasteries rebelled a king. And they said, you know, the truth is, the state gets its power from God, not the church gets its power from the state. You remember, they've tried to combine church and state, and they've been trying this for several hundred years, and it's not worked well yet. Well, this is the battle that they have. And the king at the time, who is Henry IV, says, we are doing it this way. The Pope at the time decides that he's going to take the side of these French monasteries. And he stands up and he says, no, the monasteries are right. The ultimate power is God. So let me ask you a question. Who is supreme? Is it the church? Or is it the state? Who has the right? Well, we don't want the state telling us what to do, do we? You know, the state, the U.S. government has passed a law recognizing homosexual marriage, right? Do you want the church, the state coming in here and forcing us to ordain homosexuals in this church? You all want that? Should the church have to abide by the rules of the state 
spiritually? Should the state get to determine? No, not at all. Well, then the church should rule over the state then, right? Should the church rule over the state? Should Matt and Yancey be able to go down to the mayor and tell him who to put in as city manager? <laughs> you see, the problem with that is Denton Bible Church has more money and more people than us. They would sway that vote, not us, right? You see, the truth is, Jesus made a distinction. Jesus said, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus was answering a question about this very issue. Do we obey God or Caesar? Who's in control? Religion or the state? And Jesus' answer was the state's in control over politics and the church is in control over spiritual matters. And not a combination of the two. So you have this standoff between Gregory, the Pope, Gregory the seventh and the Pope King Henry the fourth or the king King Henry the fourth and they have this standoff and King Henry says to the Pope you're not worthy to be Pope anymore get out and the Pope says to the king he says you're guilty of simony you can't be king anymore and so we have this big standoff now you know what everybody thinks is going to happen right Everyone thinks the king is going to get his armies and go to Vatican City and throw the Pope off the throne and put up a new Pope that will do what he tells him to do. That's what everyone thinks is going to happen. You know, Jesus gave a warning to the church when Jesus was alive about what's fixing to happen. The warning was this. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly... They're ravening wolves. said, you need to be careful because as a church, you need to know that people are going to show up and they're going to look spiritually good. They're not going to look dangerous. They're going to look like good, godly, decent, spiritual people. But they're really wolves. They're going to sound good when they talk. They're going to sound like sheep when they talk. But really... They're wolves. Paul said this, or Peter rather, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Peter said the time's coming when there's going to be false teachers. Do you believe there are false teachers in the church today? There were false teachers in this time. And they have a goal. They have an agenda. And that agenda is what plunges the world into what we call the dark ages. And it's a battlefield that's fought for hundreds of years in Europe between the power of the state and the power of the church. And their absolute power of the church is their goal. Their ultimate agenda is to have absolute power of the church. I want to show you how they do that. The first thing they do is they teach that deity is fierce. Now that's kind of the opposite of the teaching we hear mostly in America today, isn't it? Today, mostly God is love and He mainly wants everyone to have a good time. But that's not what was taught back then. What was taught 
is that God is a fierce and angry God. And you know, there are verses in the Bible. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Our God is a consuming fire. There are verses in the Bible that talk about the wrath and anger of God. You can go back to the Old Testament. You can read stories where God opened up the ground and swallowed people sometimes for their wickedness. You can make a case that God is fierce. That's what they did. Only that's the only case they made. And they backed it up with something else. And what they backed it up with was this. You need to pray to saints instead of God. You need to be afraid of God. But if you go to saints, these are dead Christians, and you pray to them and ask them to take those prayers to God, well, He's more likely to listen to them than He is to you. And they set up icons and relics and Mother Mary. Who could have more influence on God than Jesus' mother, right? That's the idea that you that was constantly being taught. But the Bible teaches us that God is a loving God. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Paul said, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. John said, this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. And Peter said, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. What the Bible teaches us is this. God is not more likely to listen to Mary's prayer than He is to yours. God listens to us when we pray. We find in Scripture passage after passage that teaches that God loves you. God wants you to have a relationship with Him. God doesn't. God's not some cosmic sheriff driving around behind you waiting for you to make a mistake so He can whack you. And you have to go to someone who's already dead and get them to go to God for you because you can't approach God yourself. That's just not true. Another thing they began to teach, and I say began to teach, they really developed at this period of time, was the clergy system. It was a system where someone stood between you and God. There there was God up above and there was you. And instead of you being able to have a relationship with God directly, there was a guy who stood between you and God, and that was the priest. And if you wanted a relationship with God, you had to go through someone else because you couldn't get to God yourself. And they had a whole set of doctrines that they began to teach the church to build this. The doctrines were that the Bible was forbidden. People were put to death for trying to own copies of the Bible. Sacraments and transubstantiation were two of the other primary doctrines. The sacraments were a list of doctrines, and here's the list. It's baptism, Eucharist, confirmation, orders, marriage, extreme unction, and penance. And we don't have time to get into all of those. If you want to talk about those later, ask me after church and we can discuss them. But these are doctrines and what they all were, all seven of these, is these were called sacraments, which mean they're the means of grace. They're the way a human gets grace from God. And the only way you can get grace from God is through these things. 
The problem is, for you and I, if we lived back then, is the only one who could do these things was the priest. And if the priest wouldn't baptize you, you just couldn't get saved. If the priest wouldn't give you communion, which is what Eucharist is, you just couldn't be right with God. And it was His choice whether or not you were right with God. It wasn't yours. He stood between you and Him. Now, if that's the case, guess what? People are really nice to the priest. People do whatever the priest tells them to do because he can cut them off from God. Transubstantiation, this doctrine here, says that the priest, when he says the blessing over the communion, it physically turned into blood and flesh. You can't do that. You can't do magic like that. There's nothing you can do to turn bread and fruit of the vine into flesh and blood, but the priest can. He's got that mystical power. Now what Scripture teaches us instead is that our only mediator is Jesus Christ. There's not a priest, a man, who stands between us and God. There's one one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave Himself a ransom for all. No one stands between us and God. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died. Man, Yancey are our elders. They can't condemn you. They can't justify you. You know, when you die, they may preach your funeral. But what they say at your funeral, if they say he's sitting at the right hand of Jesus, that doesn't make that so. If they say, well, hope you do better than they did because they're burning in hell, that doesn't make it so. Nothing they can do affects that. Only God has the authority to justify or condemn. Man doesn't have that authority. And the communion... Paul said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you to show the Lord's death till He comes. The Apostle Paul said, even while you're taking, he said, it's bread, it's fruit of the vine, it's not flesh and blood. These were doctrines that were developed to build up the idea that the church has ultimate and supreme power. Another doctrine was the infallibility of the Pope. When the Pope speaks ex cathedra, which means from the chair, when he's on his throne, he's preserved from error miraculously. He is the only one who has the right to determine what is good and what is evil. He speaks for God. And what happened as a result of this doctrine was the inquisition and the execution of heretics. The Inquisition was fundamentally when they organized to suppress heresy. And they sent armies out to catch you. And if you taught something different from what the Pope was teaching and they could catch you, they would burn you in public to death because you were teaching something different. Now, if you come to this church and you want to teach something that's different, the elders here may say, you know what, you're not going to be allowed to preach in this church anymore. But we're not going to gather over here by the swing set and burn you. (laughs) But that's what they were doing. They were executing, burning to death people who had different doctrines. Anyone who differed with the Pope. And it was a terrible thing. The Bible says, There's none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No one is righteous but God. The Pope is not God on earth. The Pope does not have some special level of holiness that other people don't have. In fact, the Bible teaches us that only Jesus 
speaks for God. It says, God who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. No one gets to speak for God. No one does. Except God. The Pope doesn't get to speak for God. The prophet of the Mormon church doesn't get to speak for God. Our elders don't get to speak for God, but only His Word. The last doctrine I want to mention was the doctrine of purgatory. And this was especially an insidious doctrine. It's a doctrine that says this, when you die, if you haven't been perfect, and you haven't been, Jesus gets you to heaven, but you got to go to purgatory, which is this place between heaven and hell, and you have to suffer the torment of eternal flames until you pay for the sins you committed in your life. And then you get to go on into heaven. And the more wicked you were, the longer you got to stay in hell. You may, or in purgatory. You may stay there 20 years, or you may stay there a thousand years, or you may stay there a million years, depending on how wicked you were. But you have to stay in purgatory until you pay for your sins. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not lining up for that. I don't think that's a good plan at all. And it's not taught in the Bible. But they had some doctrines that they built that bolstered this. One was the idea of supererogation. And what that was is they taught that the saints had more good deeds than they had bad deeds. So the saints didn't have to go to purgatory. They went straight to heaven. Except you got your pile of bad works, your pile of good works. For most of us, we're going to have a few more bad works than good works, so we need more good works to make up to pay for the bad works. The saints, on the other hand, had more good works than they needed. So there was like a bank in heaven full of good works, good deeds, and you could get credit for the good deeds that these saints had done. Because they had excess good deeds. How do you get that? Well, you get that through penance and indulgences. Penance is how you paid for your sins. So you'd go, you did something that was wrong, and you go to the priest, and you talk to the priest, and the priest says, well, to make up for this bad work, you got to do some good works. And you know, giving money to the church is a good work. And so this is going to cost you a thousand dollars because of this sin. So you put a thousand dollars in the plate on Sunday and you say 50 Hail Marys and you help 20 little old ladies across the street and that'll even the score for this sin. You remember this comes from all the way back in the early days when they decided the bishop had the power to decide whether someone had repented or not. That's where this comes from. And it's this snowball that's been rolling down a hill and now it's gotten huge and terrible. It's gotten to the point that they begin to sell indulgences. This is what pushed Martin Luther over the edge. An indulgence was basically the money that you pay to get a sin wiped off the books. That's what it was. And they had almost like concession stands where you could go and pay to commit certain sins. And it wasn't always sins that you paid for after you committed them. It got to the point while they were raising all this money with this that you could pay before you committed the sin and then go commit the sin. Can you imagine how much money college kids would spend before spring break? (laughs) 
at a deal like that? You pay for whatever you could afford to pay for your sins. So if you wanted to tell a lie, or you wanted to embezzle money, or you wanted to commit adultery, or you wanted to murder someone, you go to the priest and you say, hey, here's what, here's the kind of sin I want to commit. What's that going to cost me? And you could pay him and he would write you an indulgence and seal it. And that was your forgiveness that you'd bought for committing that sin. Now, can you imagine how corrupt that would get? The most famous salesman of indulgences who ever lived was a guy by the name of John Tetzel. And John Tetzel raised thousands and thousands and millions and millions of dollars selling indulgences. And he traveled from place to place to place. And he would go and the church would all gather around in that area and he would preach to them. And I've got a quote I want to read to you, a direct quote out of one of his sermons. He said this, Don't you hear the voices of your wailing dead parents and others who say, Have mercy upon me! Have mercy upon me! Because we're in severe punishment and pain. From this, you could redeem us with a small alms, and yet you do not want to do so. Open your ears as the father says to the son and the mother to the daughter. We've created you and fed you and cared for you and left you our temporal goods. Why then are you so cruel and harsh that you do not want to save us, though it only takes a little? You let us lie in flames so that we only slowly come to the promised glory. Because you see, I could pay for my own sins, but I could also pay for other people's sins. Now, I love my kids. And if I could get them out of having to pay the consequences for their sin by forking over some cash. If I had the cash, do you think I'd do that? I love my mama and my daddy. And if I believed they were writhing in the flames of hell, and by me handing a thousand dollars over to the priest, they'd get out. You think I wouldn't do that? Somebody says, oh, that's ridiculous. Who'd believe something like that? Lots of people believe that. Now, there's a wonderful story about John Tetzel that he was preaching one place and he was selling indulgences and a nobleman came to him and said, I want to buy an indulgence for a sin. Can I do that right now? And he said, yes, but you have to pay up front. The guy said, okay, and forked over the money and Tetzel filled out the paperwork and stamped it. And Tetzel was on his way out of town and this nobleman was hiding waiting for him to come by. And when he came by, the nobleman leapt out of the bushes and just beat the thunder out of John Tetzel and took all of the money that Tetzel had collected. And as he was running away, he told Tetzel, by the way, this is the sin I had in mind when I bought my indulgence from you. It was a horrible, corrupt system. The Bible tells us that money cannot influence the spiritual. Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. Only death pays for sin. The wages of sin is death. and Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. No amount of money can pay for sin. The sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient 
For such a high priest was fitting for us who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So what you had is all these things together went to build the power of the church. Now, as we close, I want to go back to this story and tell you how it ends. You might think the king would send his armies in. That's not the way it ended. The way it ended was this. Pope Gregory VII did something that had never been done in the history of the world, and he found his power that allowed him to rule Europe for hundreds of years. And that power was this. He did what was called an interdiction. And that was this. He simply sent out the message to all of France and Germany that was under King Henry. And he told all the priests and all the places, he says, you do not do the sacraments for anyone. You don't baptize anybody. You don't offer communion. You don't do last rites. You don't do marriages. You do nothing that gives people the grace of God. Now what that amounted to was this. He said to Henry, you don't do what I tell you to do and I'll send you and your whole country to hell. And people said, hey, we got to do something about this, Henry. Fix it, Henry. And Henry couldn't fix it. He couldn't think of a way to fix this. Henry failed to fix that problem. Now, Jesus said no one can separate us from the love of God. No one that lives, no angels, no powers, no principalities, nothing. But the people there didn't understand this. And King Henry went to the palace where Gregory was. And this is that palace still standing today. And he stood in the snow, bareheaded outside that palace for three days before King, before Pope Gregory allowed him to come in. And then he bowed before Pope Gregory because he didn't want him and everyone in his nation to go to hell. And the Pope had his ultimate power. You see, that's the power of superstition. Now you and I think about that and we go, that's silly. Who would believe that? Think about it. You can't read. You don't know how to read. The only guy you know that knows how to read is the priest. You don't have a Bible. Even if you did have a Bible, you couldn't read it. Even if you could read your language, the Bible is only written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. You sure don't read those. How do you know what the Bible says? You don't have any idea. Somebody says, well, i tell you what I'd do. I'd just go in and I'd take communion anyway. They had a big iron railing out front. They had guards and the priest stood behind the iron railing and the communion was behind the priest. He studied the Bible for you and told you what it said. He sang for you. He offered communion. He said the prayer and turned it into the flesh and blood of Jesus. You don't even touch it. He takes it and puts it on your little tongue. You have no access to God at all. What are you going to do? You'd do what all of them did. And you would bow before the Pope. Now, let me tell you this. During this period of time, as always was the case, 
Those heretics that the Pope was burning, a lot of those were your brothers and sisters in the Lord. People who didn't bow to the Pope and people who taught the truth and people who followed Jesus. And He was killing and burning them. While everyone else in ignorance bowed before this guy. And then the power of the church began to grow. And it grew. 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 And he had his power. And this was so bad, this spiritual bondage that the Pope had the world in for hundreds of years is called the Dark Ages because of the spiritual darkness that ruled this world. I close with this. Jesus Christ is the head of the church which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and gave Him to be the head over all things to the church. Don't you ever be intimidated by a man. Don't you ever be led by superstition. You've got a Bible. Read it. Teach your kids the Bible. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. We don't know who's going to gain power in the future. But you need to teach your kids God's Word so they know. So they're not held bondage by this kind of wickedness and kind of evil that happens. What a blessing we have to know that God is the head of the church and not a man. God has offered salvation to all who will come. He said, whosoever believes in Him. Not just people who do what the priests say. You can be right with God. And you don't need me or anyone else to approve of that. What you need to do is do what God tells you to do in His Word. So my admonition to you today is don't get so worried about politics and don't get so worried about religious leaders, but instead you be focused on learning what God says in His Word and doing what God says in His Word. And you'll be right with God. We do offer a song of invitation if you'll make your need known while we stand and sing.